Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. You see, I know why these two men cannot get Iraq out of their heads. And for very difference, I cannot get it out of mine either. It's the reason why I cannot believe anything that Western leaders say, even if, like a stopped clock, they are right twice a day. I have to check my own clock before I can believe them. The truth is, Something died with the invasion and occupation of Iraq. And I don't just mean the one million Iraqis. I don't just mean the thousands of invading troops who were killed, wounded, psychologically damaged, now turning up in prisons, in the suicide slabs, and in the mental health institutions all over the countries that participated in that coalition of the killing. I don't just mean that. I mean that something died institutionally. Something died politically, yes, but institutionally. Since we were lied to by the leaders of Britain and the United States, of Spain, of Australia, and of the other participating countries, no one believes official information At least, no one believes it like they used to. That's why they had so many troubles with their narrative on the COVID, because people are now predisposed to disbelieve them. People no longer believe the mass media because they know that the mass media marched us into the completely unjustified and cataclysmically counterproductive invasion of Iraq, an invasion and occupation that triggered the birth of ISIS, which turned out to be far more bloody and murderous even than the Al-Qaeda, which had gone before it. They know, people know instinctively, that the newspapers, that the television channels, and in many cases still working in those newspapers and television channels, are inveterate liars are lying for a living, are paid for falsehood purveyors, and nobody now is inclined to believe them. That's why they cannot bring us any film or video from the war in Ukraine, which we can see on Telegram, or if we have a VPN and can still watch the television stations that in the name of freedom of speech, they swiftly banned at the beginning of the war. They cannot let us see what is actually happening in places like Krematorsk, which was bombed overnight with catastrophic results. They can't let us see what really happened. We have to go to social media for that, and damning it is indeed. 
Because if they let us see what's happening in the war, if they let us see what's happening to the scores of billions of dollars worth of expensive weaponry that we have supplied to the Zelensky regime, they know that public opinion would swiftly and comprehensively turn against them. They cannot let us see the suffering of the poor Ukrainians. They are best, best kept in the abstract. Plucky little Ukraine standing up against an unprovoked war of aggression. They can't let us hear the voices of the people running away from the press gangs, trying to dragoon them into the meat grinder in which so many hundreds of thousands of them have already perished. Young men, even old men, being sent to a certain death as more and more Ukrainian units who are refusing to fight are pointing out, again, only on social media, only on those channels. They know that most people will never see. Now, this show will be dominated by After Wagner, we have a poll running in which we are asking, is Wagner's head, Prigozhin, a hero or a villain? Let me nail my colors firmly to the mask. For me, he is a villain, an almost James Bond kind of villain. I have always thought that he was a villain. I always opposed the idea of a mercenary army being paid by the government of Russia. I was guided, as often, by the words uh, of Machiavelli, who wrote in The Prince that any state depending in significant part on the military prowess undoubted of a mercenary army or group will always be in danger. For a mercenary group can be purchased by your opponent, perhaps as easily as they were purchased by you. Now, there are three schools of thought contending on the issue of Prigozhin. Each has some merit, and each has evidence that can be adduced in favor of it. We're going to hear tonight from one of the most important experts on military political affairs in the whole world, Scott Ritter, newly restored again onto Twitter. Scott Ritter is, along with Larry Johnson, another favorite guest of ours, former CIA and Pentagon official. Scott Ritter believes that Prigozhin was a hired traitor, that he was hired by the Ukrainian side by the British, perhaps, by the Americans and the British, perhaps. We'll hear directly from Scott on his thesis. There are reasons uh, to believe it. One is the other school of thought, the second school of thought that is in contention, which is that Prigozhin launched uh, the mutinous, treacherous actions last weekend because he was losing a $2 billion a year contract with the Russian Ministry of Defense, half of it for the food that unknown to me until reading it on Scott Ritter's excellent blog, scottritterextra.com. 
to which I've subscribed and encourage you also to subscribe. Half of that $2 billion was supplying the food to the entire Russian military in the field. One contract lost. The second contract for another billion dollars was for the Wagner Group's participation in the special military operation itself. Driven mad, narcissistically inclined in any case, it seems likely, I won't say highly likely, that entirely borderized phrase or use of the two English words coined by Theresa May uh, on the Scripple affair, I won't say highly likely, but likely. It was likely filthy lucre that moved Prigozhin onto the path of treachery. There's a third school of thought. It is that this is all a splendid and devilishly clever 5G chess maneuver by Putin and Prigozhin. People cite in favor of that theory that the two have been close for 30 years, that they were part of the St. Petersburg group, which came to prominence in Russian politics in the late 1990s. They cite the fact that Prigozhin actually served Putin at table, supplied his food to the Kremlin, and was at least for a time, we don't know exactly for how long, one of his closest associates, even friends. They say that Putin has, by this wheeze, smoked out those that might be vulnerable to treachery in a crisis. The problem with that is that not a single person, not a single military officer, not a single soldier, not a single military unit, not a single journalist, not a single politician, not even a single oligarch. And they would be the first to turn, be sure about that. Broke with Putin in the midst of the crisis of last weekend. So if it was to smoke people out, then they weren't smoked out at all, either because they have no such feelings of treachery, or because they realized, as I put it, that a fight between Vladimir Putin and Evgeny Prigozhin is like Rocky Marciano uh, versus the not legendary Don Coqueldo. Could be only one such a fight. So there are three schools of thought contending. One, that Prigozhin has now been sent to Belarus, not into exile, but to plan and presumably then launch the next phase of the special military operation. It is, after all, a mere 100 kilometers from the Belarusian borders to the capital city of Kiev. Some people say that this was a part of the plan. Others say, like me, I think, that Prigozhin's motive was base and lousy and got the fate that it deserved. And the third school of thought, represented by Larry Johnson, 
and Scott Ritter is that he was turned, that he became effectively a double agent. One last problem with that last point is that if it is true, then without doubt, Prigozhin is now a man looking for a balcony to jump off. And we'll be talking to our favorite Chinese correspondent, Li Jingjing. She has just recently been to Tibet. Tibet, once loved by the lovies of Hollywood, we don't hear so much about it now, not least since the Dalai Lama was caught on camera, French kissing a little boy in an audience that he gave. The Dalai Lama, as Rupert Murdoch once called him, an old fool shuffling around in Gucci shoes. Gucci shoes that he can well afford, having been on the receiving end of CIA largesse for the entirety of his life. There are some fools who think that the Dalai Lama is a demigod, maybe even a god. He has himself claimed to be both in public and recently. But for those of us who don't believe that men can be gods or even demi-gods, he is that old fool shuffling around in Gucci shoes. But he represents a Tibet which is no longer there. Sure, the serenity is still there. Sure, religiosity is still there. Sure, the Buddhist faith continues to thrive there. But what was once a feudal state, I was going to say semi-feudal, but it was fully feudal until the 1950s, fully feudal, indeed virtually a slave-owning society, which had no money, which had dirt roads, where people had no running water, never mind inside toilets, where people lived in poverty and hunger. Now, Tibet is utterly transformed. The period of the People's Republic of China reasserting its sovereignty over the land of Tibet has transformed the landscape. And it seems to me, though we'll hear from Li Jingjing herself, nothing has been lost about the good things of ancient Tibet, but a very great deal has been gained for the people who actually have to live there rather than drop in from Hollywood once in a blue moon. It's going to be, I think, a very busy show. 1.76 million people watched all or part of the mother of all talk shows over the last seven days, and Sunday's show is already breaking records. So by the time we get to fully count that, I think you're going to be amazed at the number of people who are increasingly tuning in to this global university of the airwaves. I think a million people have already watched Sunday's show, and it's only Wednesday. And you, I think, were responsible for that, not just by turning up yourself, but by talking about the show. So I'm going to ask you now to make sure you subscribe to our channel, to my channel on YouTube. I have 275,000 subscribers on that channel, and I want to get to 300,000. 
there are algorithmic reasons for my wanting to be so. Please click like if you're watching on YouTube and please share if you're watching on Facebook and if you're watching on Twitter as people now have started to do. And of course on Rumble where I'm confidently expecting significant developments in the show's relationship with Rumble in the next few weeks or months. So, Scott Ritter's coming up next. You don't want to miss him. Stay tuned. I'll be right back. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. Scott Ritter needs no introduction from me. He is, quite simply, peerless in the analysis that he has made, not just in the Iraq war before it, the one that Putin is very clearly losing, according to Joe Biden. Let's here, direct, from the Oracle, Scott Ritter. Scott, welcome uh, back to the show. First of all, I've just subscribed to your uh, Scott Ritter Extra. I I suggest everyone does. It was the clearest and best uh, uh, analysis, really, the narrative of what happened last weekend. But before we go into that, which inevitably will dominate our conversation, can you tell us what you think happened last night, overnight, in Krematorsk. Who killed whom, and why were they there? Again, um, at at the risk of speculation, uh, because that's all I'll be doing, um, what I will say is that there is a clear trail, a digital trail, uh, that can lead uh, certain uh, trainers, uh, foreign trainers from Canada and elsewhere, who arrived in Ukraine to provide assistance to the Ukrainian army uh, and lead them to a destination, uh, this restaurant, um, at a time when uh, Ukrainian officers were also scheduled to be there. Um, And I believe that the Russians uh, detected this and um, fired a missile that was designed to kill as many Ukrainian officers and foreign military advisors as possible. You know, I spent quite a bit of time in Vietnam uh, and uh, I I was struck by how the Vietnamese fighters and leadership stayed underground as uh, much as possible. 
it seems to me extraordinarily stupid for so many Ukrainian military officers and trainers, let's call them that, mercenaries perhaps, from NATO countries to be in the same restaurant at the same time. Are they stupid? The short answer is yes, uh, stupid and foolish, and unfortunately for many of them now dead or wounded. Um, look, this is a war zone. Uh, Kramatorsk is a city that's uh, very close to the front line. It's a city that provides critical logistical support to the Ukrainian military as it prepares uh, units to be dispatched to the front lines for this counteroffensive. It's a city under con constant surveillance by the Russians who are looking for any opportunity to uh, disrupt or neutralize um, any military capability before it could be used in support of the counteroffensive. And why you think the Kramat, why one would think the Kramatorsk is a place to socialize? My understanding is that there were many um, females, uh, civilians present uh, who were there to socialize uh, with the officers and the trainers. And uh, my heart goes out to them. I, I don't uh, wish harm to any civilian. But you're in Kramatorsk, in a war zone, at a time when Russians are actively looking for targets related to uh, the, the Ukrainian counteroffensive. Um, this was as foolish as it gets. Now, uh, for those who've not yet had the benefit of reading your uh, analysis on Scott Ritter Extra, uh, just lay out your thesis about the events of last weekend, Wagner, Prigozhin, et al. Well, in short, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a fan of uh, Occam's razor, which uh, basically is the most obvious answer is probably the answer. And when you examine Prigozhin, the issue that was dominating him uh, since September of last year was the changing legal status of the Wagner group that occurred when the Lugansk and Donetsk territories, Donbass, uh, became absorbed into the Russian Federation. Uh, Wagner uh, is a, a private military company um, that is not permitted by law to operate on the territory of the Russian Federation. And in September, uh, Wagner's legal status was challenged and, and Prigozhin was put on notice that uh, Wagner would have to adapt to the new reality that eventually Wagner would have to uh, sign over contracts uh, and convert to a volunteer unit uh, reporting to the Ministry of Defense. Um, Prigozhin viewed Wagner not as a um, a unit fulfilling its patriotic duty. That That's the impression I got. It's a money-making machine for him. He made $940 million in a contract that ran from 1 May of uh, 2022 to 1 May 2023. And Prigozhin wasn't about to let this slip away. So what we saw from September onwards is A, Prigozhin came out as the owner. B, he began a very public public relations campaign designed to elevate the status of Wagner in the eyes of the Russian public while denigrating the Ministry of Defense, creating a, um, a clear black and white choice for whomever uh, his target audience is of uh, which unit would they prefer to have to defend them from the Ukrainians. And while the Wagner forces were heroic, they were brave, um, I, I think it's uh, a stretch to say that they were the model that all of Russia should follow. What people don't understand is that Prigozhin said that um, 
you know, Wagner would save lives. But in the battle for Bakhmut, while Wagner killed 75,000 Ukrainians, they lost 30,000 of their own troops. That's barely a two point something uh, to one kill ratio. In the current counteroffensive, which Defense Minister Shoigu and Chief of General Staff Gerasimov, two of um, Prigozhin's biggest targets for criticism, they've managed this. There's a 10 to one uh, kill ratio, 13,000 dead Ukrainians to 1,300 dead Russians. Tell me who's saving Russian lives. It's not Wagner. Prigozhin uh, put his own personal ambition and his greed ahead of uh, Russian national interests. And in the end, when confronted with the fact that the Ministry of Defense was not going to yield, that Wagner would have to convert to a volunteer um, unit, Prigozhin did the unthinkable, he committed an act of high treason, uh, seeking to drive on Moscow in an effort to compel Shoigu and to compel Gerasimov to resign, which means to compel Putin to fire his military leaders, which means you're riding against Putin. That's treason. Now, in a former incarnation of Russia, more fondly remembered by me than you, I'm sure, and none of this would ever have gotten off the mark. And the uh, idea that uh, a military formation, not even strictly, never mind uh, notionally, but not uh, even in fact under the control of the state, would be able to gather thousands of people uh, at the uh, former Russian border and march on Rostov with heavy military equipment uh, without being stopped brutally in their tracks uh, is unthinkable. Uh, why did Putin allow it to happen, do you think? Wagner was created under unique circumstances um, in 2014 when constitutionally, um, President Putin uh, was unable to send Russian forces, regular forces, to uh, the Donbass to help the ethnic Russian uh, forces because the Constitution prohibits the deployment of Russian forces outside of the territory of Russia without the express permission of uh, the Russian Federal Assembly, the Duma. Um, Wagner was created as a private military contractor that would allow Russia to divert the resources to Lugansk um, in an unofficial manner. Um, and it succeeded. Wagner did a very good job. Uh, there's no doubt about that. And when the special military operation uh, started and then stalled, and it became clear that uh, Russia was going to have to do some heavy fighting on the territories of Lugansk and Donetsk, which at the time were not Russian territory, uh, the decision was made that it would be easier to have Wagner beef up its presence than it would be to send dedicated Russian uh, forces to that area. So it was a matter of convenience and it was a matter of efficiency. Wagner did fight very well and they were they already had a good relationship with Lugansk and Donetsk. The problem came when Russia did something that was not considered uh, when they started the special military operation, the annexation of Lugansk and Donetsk. And now you have a legal problem that was not foreseen when Wagner was uh, tasked with expansion. Uh, and the other wild card was Prigozhin himself. Um, this was a man who was supposed to be a trusted agent, um, you know, an insider that would never betray Putin. And um, I think, you know, his greed got to him. And this was, um, you know, this again was one of those unforeseen things. Uh, I think this is a lesson learned for Russia, for Putin, uh, for, for anybody involved in these issues. Uh, private military contractors are a thing of the past. Uh, 
they're not going to happen again because you know Russia is a serious nation. It's a nuclear power. Um, they just finished hosting the St. Petersburg International Economic Forum, where Putin was able to brag about how Russia has reconstituted its economy. It's the most powerful Russian economy in the history of Russia. Um, that's the mark of a serious nation. And yet a week later, they're looking like a banana republic. And that's something that Putin can never again allow to happen. Now, what supports your thesis that not only was this treason, uh, but that it was directly at the behest and in collaboration with uh, Russia's enemies, the NATO countries, its ancient enemy of Britain, and its slightly newer enemy of the United States? Well, let's just start off with um, some, I, I guess we would call it direct evidence uh, in the form of classified um, US intelligence documents that were leaked by this airman uh, that uh, use TikTok or whatever he used to uh, disseminate the, uh, the, the documents. There's several documents uh, that refer to uh, connections between the Ukrainian intelligence service and Prigozhin, uh, these, these, that there were actual meetings and liaison uh, dating back to January of this year. Um, so there's, there's that evidence there. Uh, but we also have some uh, indirect evidence. So I'll give you an example. The United States, we claim to be concerned about Russia's nuclear arsenal. We claim to desire to have the security that you hear us talk about uh, the dangers we feel exist when Russia deploys nuclear weapons into Belarus, what the security of these weapons are going to be. We also uh, claim that we are against um, you know, acts of violence, acts of terrorism, uh, things of this nature. We have a history of actually calling the Russian government up and warning them of impending terrorist actions. Most recently, uh, a telephone call from the United States stopped a terrorist event in St. Petersburg. Um, so when you hear all this and then you see that the United States, the CIA briefed the Gang of Eight, the eight most powerful members of Congress, days before Prigozhin began his attack, briefing them on the attack. It means we knew. We knew something. Now, if we knew and this was intelligence and we're saying, oh, my goodness, this is bad, we should pick up the phone and call Putin and say, hey, I know we're not friends right now, but there's a problem. Uh, you have a threat coming in to overthrow your government and it could threaten nuclear weapons security. And we want to give you a heads up so that the world doesn't spin out of control. But we remain silent and it's not just silent. We're now being told that Congress was briefed by the CIA that we expected the Persian mutiny to be extremely bloody, that we expected extreme violence. This means this is what we wanted to happen. And, you know, we were hoping that Prigozhin would generate a civil war in Russia, a civil war that would topple Vladimir Putin. So I think when you look at the direct evidence in the form of the documentation and the indirect evidence based upon behavioral patterns, uh, as an intelligence analyst, I have to tell you, if you slid that across my table, uh, the assessment that I'd be giving back to you is that it's more likely than not that the United States was involved in the Prigozhin mutiny. And the British Prime Minister was also briefed by MI6, I'm told. Uh, that could be because the US shared their intelligence with the UK, or it could be because the UK was more organically involved. Which do you think it was? MI6 has taken the lead in coordinating with Ukrainian intelligence. Um, in this case, they actually have a more uh, dynamic role than the United States. And there's a number of reasons for this. 
uh, some of which deal with uh, legalities. Um, you know, the president of the United States, in order to authorize certain covert actions, has to issue presidential findings that have to be briefed to Congress. That would be inconvenient. Whereas the British prime minister can use the SAS, use the SBS, use MI6 in a more liberal fashion. Um, and so the United States is yielding the field to the British. If the Ukrainian intelligence services had wind of Prigozhin's treasonous behavior in January, you can be certain that the British had it. The British also maintain a London station where that which is staffed with uh, Russian exiles, including people like uh, Mr. Uh, Kodakovsky, the former billionaire that had been arrested by Putin, currently resides in London and is running on behalf of MI6, an information warfare uh, scheme. Part of uh, Kodakovsky's uh, remit is to maintain connectivity with um, uh, Russian oligarchs, with Russian businessmen, with uh, politicians who are uh, you know, uh, in opposition to Putin. And again, now we get into speculation, but one has to wonder why Prigozhin would commit an act of suicide, because any military professional will tell you that if you take 8,000 men and you string them out on a highway in a column, marching toward a prepared defensive position supported by air power that'll wipe you out, um, it's a one-way trip to hell. Uh, and yet, Prigozhin did it, which means, because he's not a fool, um, he anticipated that he would have Russian military uh, rise up and support him, Russian politicians come to his assistance, Russian oligarchs promising assistance. He expected support and the only people that could guarantee him that kind of support is a foreign intelligence service that has connectivity to Moscow, and that foreign intelligence service is MI6. Now, we can confirm that 12 Russian pilots were killed by Prigozhin. That's no small matter when you think of the failure of the Ukrainian uh, forces to kill that many pilots in the course of the entire war. Uh, ten of those were uh, on an unarmed plane, an electronic warf warfare plane, and two of them helicopter pilots. Uh, that's 12 widows, 12 fatherless families. In the light of that, it is slightly puzzling that there are still people who insist that this has all been uh, a plan. Uh, a, a kind of multi-level chess game in which Prigozhin and Putin were involved. What's your, uh, I'm sure, damning uh, analysis of that theory? Look, I enjoyed watching Game of Thrones. I thought it was one of the best TV shows out there. I know there's people that don't agree with me, but I found it to be very entertaining. Uh, but it was fantasy. Uh, unfortunately, there's people who apparently were fans of Game of Thrones and then feel that... Um, that that kind of activity takes place. Let me let me set them straight. Vladimir Putin is a very, very serious man. Uh, he doesn't play parlor games. He doesn't engage in Game of Thrones fantasy. He is the decisive leader of a world power that has nuclear weapons. I'll say that one more time so it sinks in. He is the decisive leader of a world power that has nuclear weapons. Somebody like that doesn't play parlor games, doesn't play 5D chess, doesn't fool around. Um, he is a no-nonsense leader, and that's the way it needs to be interpreted. Look, 12 Russian soldiers were murdered. They weren't killed. This wasn't combat, because Prigozhin was not a combatant. The Wagner forces on the ground were not combatants. They were criminals. 
They were carrying out an illegal coup d'etat. So they murdered these 12 Russian heroes, uh, patriots of Russia who were serving their nation when they were shot out of the skies by forces who were given those weapons to protect Russia, who were now using them to attack Russia. Um, and, and people will say, well, why didn't Vladimir Putin prosecute Prigozhin then for murder? Because that's a serious crime. Well, the deal that was struck prevented the deaths of thousands, if not tens of thousands of Russians, Russian soldiers, Wagner fighters, Russian civilians who have been caught in the, in the middle. And so the, the pardon that was given to Prigozhin and the uh, participants of this was a compromise deal. But let's be clear about this. Putin's pardon only extends to the murders, those 12 soldiers in the act of treason that was carried out in support of that. <laughs> My dog apparently uh, objects to this. But um, the the uh, the Russians are currently investigating uh, Prigozhin for treason, uh, betraying his country by spying on behalf of a foreign intelligence service. But more importantly, and I call this the Al Capone effect, Remember, Al Capone was a murderer, an American gangster who murdered people, but he went to jail for tax evasion. Prigozhin is being investigated for corruption. That $2 billion gift that he was given by the Russian government, a lot of that money went to his pocket illegally, and he will be found to have committed corruption, and he will be arrested on charges of corruption, and he will spend the rest of his life rotting in a Russian jail. You can mark my words on that one. Unless, of course, he finds a balcony to fall off. That's also more likely than that he has gone to Belarus to continue the war, isn't it? Well, he most certainly hasn't gone to Belarus to continue the war. He is uh, in exile. Um, Lukashenko is an ally of Putin. Now imagine, again, for all these 5D chess players, uh, Lukashenko is an ally of Putin. And so he's going to allow a man who just betrayed Putin at the highest levels to come in and give him responsibility, give him soldiers give him military capability, it will never happen. Um, certain Wagner soldiers will be allowed to train Belarusian forces on the lessons they learned in fighting, but there will be no Wagner unit 100 kilometers from uh, Kiev that's prepared to advance on Kiev. That's just, again, fantasy. Um, Karashenko, I mean, uh, 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 the, uh, the head of Wagner, whose name I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm forgetting right now, Prigozhin, uh, he's a criminal. Uh, he's not to be trusted. And uh, that's just the way it is. Scott Ritter, the master at work. Thank you very much again. And thanks to your dog for not objecting throughout the interview. Much obliged uh, to you. So is Wagner's Prigozhin a hero or a villain? You've heard me. More importantly, you've heard from Scott Ritter. Get voting on Telegram, on Twitter, and on YouTube. Let me take a quick break because that interview slightly overran, but I hope you'll agree it was surely worth it. Stay tuned. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. Now, those of you who watched our epic uh, edition of the Mother of All Talk Shows from Beijing recently, will remember her, although she's been on the show quite a few times and has grown into quite the media star. I won't tell you how young she is, but she's definitely wise way beyond her years, and she's doing more and more challenging work. She's recently, as I said earlier, been in Tibet 
producing special reports from there. But first I want to ask her about the ill-fated, or was it, visit of Antony Blinken to Beijing. I hope she's able to answer that. Li Jingjing, welcome back on the Mother of All talk shows. I promise you we'll get to Tibet, but I was struck by the uh, five-star welcome, uh, the red carpet, the military parade uh, that the Prime Minister of Bermuda got uh, in China just the other day. Uh, the level of respect afforded her was uh, terrific to see. I'm not sure she would have got that kind of a welcome most anywhere else. And then I compared it to the, well, rather sparse welcome uh, that uh, Anthony Blinken, the Secretary of State of the United States of America, got when he arrived in Beijing. Not only was there no red carpet, there didn't seem to be anyone there even to help him with his bags. Uh, what did all that mean? Thank you, George, for having me again, and thank you for your wonderful introduction. You know, I mean, it's understandable with the the reception that he got. Uh, you know, I think although Blinken always say his mission, his visit is about to repair the relationship between China and the U.S., I doubted their sincerity and the capacity to actually do that. And there are a few signs. Uh, for example, every time the United States officials trying to repair something, they will release this, um, uh, how to say, traditional repertoire, this concerted campaign uh, of releasing some damaging information to hype the China threat. I can give you a few examples. For example, Blinken was supposed to visit China in February. And right before his visit, we started to hear the Chinese spy balloon story, right? They shoot it down with missiles. All the U.S. media uh, uh, use front page coverage for that balloon for 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 a week, over a week. And after they, sh they shoot it down, like a month later, did they still haven't released any information about that? What have they found? Have uh, from the debris? What device is China using? We haven't heard that. Just about just the hype. So and so Blinken canceled that visit in February. And then this time, uh, when Blinken was supposed to visit, on the eve of Blinken's visit, the Wall Street Journal released this another huge allegation that China and Cuba was building this spy base in Cuba. And uh, uh, like they accused China and Cuba was supposed to uh, do the eavesdropping on the United States. Again, no solid proof other than some anonymous U.S. officials. And Cuba denied it, and China denied it, Pentagon denied it at first, but now U.S. officials also just play along with this uh, concerted complaint. So this is a very, how to say, time-tested ploy uh, that's, that always works. Uh, so they will release some damaging information. The leaks always comes from uh, certain U.S. officials or those in the intelligence. So this is their strategy. So they do that before the visit so they can force the president uh, into a more hostile or confrontational way on foreign policy. 
uh, derail any effort to reduce the tensions. And uh, those people at the Capitol Hill can also just charge the presidents as you are being soft on China. Uh, you should take a tougher action. So, and uh, there's another political stunt before Blinken's uh, the so so uh, so-called two visit. During uh, just a few weeks ago, before Blinken's visit in Singapore, the Shangri-La dialogue, uh, the U.S. For defense uh, defense minister Aloy Austin um, said they want to talk to China's defense minister because the communication between the two countries' military is canceled due to the U.S. Uh, recent provocations over the Taiwan Strait. So there were no communications, and Lloyd Austin pretend that he wants to talk to China's defense minister. Uh, and then all the media start to say, oh, wow, you know, China's defense minister canceled, rejected our invitation to, to sit down, to have a meeting. See, the Chinese don't want to talk to us. But the thing is, they, they, they don't mention that the, the U.S. put sanctions on China's defense minister. And right before the visit to Singapore, Biden again said it. He refused to lift the sanctions on China's foreign minister. And then somehow they, when they go to Singapore, they pretend we are friendly, we want to talk. If you want to talk, just leave the sanctions. And meanwhile, they also send U.S. warships into South China Sea, um, warplanes as well. The, some CNN reporters, CBS reporters were in the U.S. plane uh, making the story, oh, see, uh, Chinese pilot are so aggressive. They intercepted our plane. This is so provocative and unnecessary. But again, they also don't ask, why are you 8,000 miles away from your own border in our doorstep? Uh, and it basically just 100 miles from our borders. So it's it's understandable that Chinese military will take some action to defend the border. So if you put all this information, all this event together, you know, there's, uh, like I mentioned earlier, tested, time-tested um, skill, time-tested ploy, which is a uh, concerted campaign uh, in order to damage any move, any, any move to repair the relations. So even before his visit, I don't see the sincerity and the capacity of the U.S. officials to repair the relationship between China and the U.S. Now, uh, the economic warfare uh, that uh, the United States seeks to encourage others to engage in uh, with China is having mixed results. Uh, the Italian prime minister made a quite shocking uh, attack on China that I read today. Uh, she said that China was a systemic challenge uh, to the European Union, uh, whereas Germany and its leadership seems to view China as an important partner uh, for the EU. Uh, President Macron is somewhere in the middle. When he's in China, he's as sweet as pie uh, or as lychee. Uh, but when he's uh, back in the councils of Europe, he can often be heard uh, echoing the uh, Biden White House talking points on uh, China. H how far do you think the European Union is likely to follow the hostile line of the United States on China? Um, if I think from the perspective of European countries, it's understandable to think China is a systemic challenge because China is has a different system, 
they look different, and um, so when now China is rising, they don't know what to do, what's gonna happen. So I can understand that. But the thing is, now we are more integrated than ever. We cannot uh, separate from each other. Only by working together can uh, we all have a better economy. And if you look at what's happening in the world, actually, it's pretty clear. Um, I don't know whether you noticed the recent news. Uh, for example, Chinese leaders have been meeting, uh, visiting foreign leaders almost every week. Just this week, the leaders from Barbados, from New Zealand, from Vietnam, Mongolia are all visiting China uh, because they are attending the Summer Davos Forum in China's Tianjin city. So uh, they are signing new deals, uh, signing new agreements, upgrading uh, comprehensive strategic partnerships. And every, uh, before that, leaders from Latin American countries like Lula from Brazil, and uh, also leaders from Cuba and uh, leaders from African countries like Eritrea, DRC, they all visited China. They all received red carpet welcome. And uh, it's it's... So if some European leaders or U.S. leaders think they keep saying China is aggressive, offensive, coercing other countries into into some following China's foreign policies. The thing is, if you look at the news and look at their reactions and listen to their talks, they are all very willing to work with China. And there is so much respect from both sides. Chinese leaders respect those leaders and those leaders also so happy to come here respect Chinese leaders. So if China is so aggressive, is so coercive, and so not respecting, why are all countries lining up to visit China and sending new deals or new agreements with China? And why are they uh, pivoting away from the U.S.? If U.S. is such a good partner, why they don't, why don't they stick to it and start to look for a new partner? So I think that already says a lot. Well, nobody could have said it better. Uh, let's uh, turn to Tibet. I was much more vicious about the Dalai Lama than I could possibly encourage you to be because diplomacy is not just in your character, it's also in the Chinese character. But I think it's fair to say that Tibet is utterly transformed. And it is unrecognizable to the picture of an oppressed uh, religious enclave, uh, beloved of Hollywood liberals and, and liberals everywhere. You've just been there. Tell us what you found. So as a reporter in China, I've traveled to regions like Tibet and Xinjiang multiple times in different years. So I feel so lucky to witness the dramatic changes in those regions over these years. And uh, because I always interesting to see how the poverty alleviation program carried out in the local level and how it changed the lives of, of ordinary people. So the West uh, care about Tibet so much, right? It's always on the news and they keep seeing how oppressive that region is. But uh, I've been there. Uh, there are many videos and images on my account so people can take a look. With Those pictures and videos are without filters, BBC filters, uh, which we call it. It's a term, BBC filters. So whenever BBC make a story about China, they always make everything darker. The trees, not so green, skies are not so blue. Somehow, like we, so now we call it BBC filters. So I can give you three data 
about uh, Tibet to give you a glimpse how dramatic dr- how dramatic the changes are. Uh, first, is the regional GDP. Yeah. So in the past seventy years, the regional GDP of Tibet increased by three hundred times. So in in nineteen fifty one. Tibetan people basically had nothing. They didn't have their own land. They didn't. Oh, uh, the, many people don't know. There's a feudal serfdom, theocratic system in Tibet. So those who fled to most of those Tibetans who fled to other countries are the nobles uh, who own ninety five percent of the people in Tibet. In Tibet because they think they are their serfs and they own 90% of the properties, natural resources in Tibet. So the 90% of people in Tibet didn't have anything in 90, before 1951. So the original GDP in Tibet increased by uh, 300 times. The second data is the average life expectancy. In 1951, the average life expectancy of Tibetan people was was 35 years old, 35 years old. I'm 35 years old. If I was born in Tibet, I would be dead already. But now the average life expectancy in Tibet is 75. That's the normal age that we see today. So that's the life expectancy. Third is the, uh, uh, oh, there's so many data. Uh, which one should I, should I bring? Uh, how about the illiteracy? Uh, because basically, in before 1951, the majority of people, almost all Tibetan people were illiterate, except for those nobles uh, who have serfs. They had the privilege to go to school. The majority of Tibetan people were illiterate. So there's no cultural preservation before uh, in Tibet back then as well. But now everybody went to school. Everybody know a little how to speak and write. And um, in China, we have nine years of compulsory education where like all of us, we have to go to school, uh, like kindergarten, primary school, middle school, high school, it's nine years. But in Tibet and also Xinjiang, it's 15 years. 15 years of compulsory education all paid by the government. And in other parts of China, like us, we still have to pay the fees for all the textbooks. We have to pay for the food, for the meal in school. But in Tibet and Xinjiang, kids don't have to pay anything. All meals are included. All textbooks are included. Just go to school, 15 years from kindergarten to high school. So these three data show the dramatic changes in Tibet in the past 70 years. And also I went to, because some the anti-China crowds and the separatists, they keep saying, well, Tibetans cannot speak their languages. Uh, they, can, they don't have their religious freedom. They cannot do this. Uh, their culture is being destroyed. It's totally on the contrary. Because of they are going to school, they, are, uh, have, they have better economic status. Now they are able to protect their cultures. Many of the their traditional uh, culture, for example, they have very special drawing art, tanka. Um, now they revive the lost te- uh, techniques 
and then formed a school and started to pass it on to younger generations. I went to Tibet University. They have this research center where they kept all the scriptures of Tibetan Buddhism and the re- religion before Tibetan Buddhism arrived and uh, the classics of local intellectuals from hundreds of years ago, century years ago. They preserved that and studied that and digitalized all those manuscripts, all those classics, so they can continue to study it. So it's actually because of the policy that China is, is putting on Tibet now that those people can finally have the freedom and uh, can continue to pass on their culture, pass on their, their traditional arts, and uh, you know, many who are working in the government levels in different organizations actually who used to born, who were born from the serfdom family. Those people had no future when they live in the old Tibet, but now they're working as cadres in government, as government officials, uh, have their own businesses, have all their own lands, send their kids to school so they can forever change their life. So this is the real Tibet that the Western mainstream media never tell people. Li Jingjing, I can't get enough of you, and I know that the audience feels the same. Don't be a stranger. Come back soon on the mother of all talk shows and set the record straight, as you have done so splendidly this evening. Uh, Shan in Manchester is on the line. She is one of our leading cadres in No to NATO, No to War. Shan. Thanks for uh, joining us. Did I sum the organization up all right? You certainly did, George. Good evening and good evening to all of your audience. I'm just calling tonight as a segue to what you've just been telling people about our meeting tomorrow evening at 7 p.m. British summertime, which will be held on this channel live. And we'll be having a debate about the Ukrainian war logs. We've got some great guests lined up for you. We've got Richard Medhurst, who is a a marvellous young independent journalist and political commentator. We have Patrick Kenningson, who is a writer, news analyst and podcast host for 21st Century Wire. Anastasia Battle, um, who's an organiser with the LaRouche Foundation. She's the editor-in-chief of the Schiller Institute, and um, she's an organiser of the International Peace Coalition, of which No to NATO, No to War is proudly part of. Anastasia, you may have seen helping um, Jose Vega, who's been doing some fantastic interventions in the US with political uh, people and different senators and uh, a lot of his uh, videos have gone viral uh, from what they've been doing so i hope that we'll see your audience tomorrow night at seven o'clock george and i look forward to seeing you then thank you very much indeed shan look forward to that also uh let's go to lance in canada who's worried as we all should be about the zaporizhia nuclear power station which may be the next big crisis in the Ukraine. Lance, what would you like to say? Well, I always want to start with thanking you for adding so much decency to the world, George, and uh, being as brave as you are to do it. Thank you. Uh, it's tough. Thank I you, guess I've got Appreciate a, it. A slight, no, thank, no, and you're welcome. Uh, a slight thing on the Pergozin thing. I mean, he has been through a lot. He's presided over a lot of shipped bodies. Uh, I mean, I don't know that I could live with that myself. But the one thing, the week before this happened, <clears throat> I don't know if it's coincidence or not, 
But Zelensky made an announcement that the Russians are going to cause a radiological emergency false flag on Zaporozhye, right? But we also have to remember, too, that that dam was blown, the reservoirs drained. Mm-hmm. So at this mm-hmm. point, em- employees know there's going to, Russians are going, the employees know the Russians are about to blow it up and have some sort of false flag, right? Uh, because Zelensky said it, a uh, little sarcasm there. But my point is that those employees are looking for water to cool the shutdown reactors. They could be going out to the riverbed with diesel pumpers. They could be moving fuel from pools. They could be doing all sorts of things, right, um, that they have to do. So the one thing this did do was it seemed to, you know, make Anthony Blinken suddenly turn to a man of glee when it happened. And it kind of did think i would think by time for them I, I i mean i don't know the situation on the ground i don't i just know that you have a few megawatts of cooling to deal with when you have six reactors off power so i mean it did provide that i believe i don't know because I, I am not there but that has to be that had to be done and it was the week after they called for a false flag on blowing up zaporizhia and, and at the beginning of this war, when those employees signed the contracts to work for Russia, they were also told if they signed the contracts to work for the other employer, that they would be traitors, which in my mind is absolute lunacy that the Western world would even let the Ukrainian government say that. Like, they, they have to put keep the reactor safe. That's just what they have to do. So I, I don't know how you feel about that, but I do feel it might have bought some time. Well, I do feel that you have summarized the situation uh, extremely well. Uh, Russia has, of course, a long history in this war of attacking itself, uh, attacking uh, its own pipelines, the Nord Stream, attacking its own Kremlin in a false flag operation, attacking its own bridge, the Kerch Bridge, uh, linking mainland Russia to the Crimea. Uh, attacking itself in all kinds of ways. And the latest absurdity is the false flag analogy that you describe, which is that Russia is somehow going to attack a nuclear power plant which it controls. And, of course, one of the uh, most ridiculous of the aspects of that is that by blowing up the dam, uh, the Karkova dam, a couple of weeks ago, the Ukrainians successfully made impossible a proper supply of water for the cooling systems of the Zaporizhia uh, nuclear plant. It is, of course, a perfect absurdity. The truth is, the Ukrainians did all of that with the encouragement, in some cases, the assistance of NATO countries, including my own, and perhaps also including yours, Lance, because one time peaceful Canada has turned into the war uh, hawk, ravenous war hawk, uh, over these last few years under that nice liberal chap, uh, Mr. Trudeau. So uh, 
Anyone who believes that the Russians bombed their own Kremlin, bombed uh, their own uh, dam, uh, and are threatening to bomb their own nuclear power plant, which would, of course, create a new Chernobyl in the region. And when the wind blows, of course, the radiation will go every which way. Anyone who imagines that it will only be Ukrainians who will die of the cancer created by that radiation, first of all, cares nothing about Ukrainians and has no understanding of how far the relatively minor leakage in, uh, in uh, previous emissions, uh, not just uh, the former Soviet uh, emissions, but Japanese ones, for example, have no idea how far this goes. Chernobyl was killing people in Wales. It was in the food chain all over Europe, right to the very western edges of it. And so this is very high stakes. Anyone who's complicit in any way in a Ukrainian explosion of, of will be a war criminal whose name will live in infamy in history if we're lucky enough to have a history. Uh, Ian is in Ontario in Canada and wants to talk about diplomacy. This will probably be the last call. Ian, welcome. George, this is Ian again, Ian with the two I's, I-A-I-N. And uh, I just wanted to clear okay, up uh, something I made, did make too clear on Sunday was that uh, my nostalgia was for, uh, for diplomacy, which, which uh, Margaret, uh, uh, who's slower, her actual maiden name is, is, uh, is uh, what's her name? It's Margaret uh, Marsh, Margaret Gray Marsh. And so... That was her maiden name. I've been, I've been looking, I've been looking at her story. Yes, I've been looking at her story and talking to my mother about it. Go ahead, Ian. And, and also that uh, she actually knew <clears throat> Charles de Gaulle because she was a great uh, hostess in Paris at the time, and so even she invi she invited uh, his wife along with her and uh, <clears throat> with, with his wife. Uh, and with, with uh, Charles de Gaulle, but he said, oh, no, I can't do it because she has a weight problem. And she said, oh, don't, don't invite her anyways. And so he did, and uh, she had a great time, and de Gaulle thanked her for that afterwards. Those were the days. De Gaulle was a real French leader, wasn't he? Despite the many disagreements that I would have uh, with him, he clearly stood up for the interests of France, unlike little Macron. What do you say? Yeah, but there's, there's, all they have now is cartoon characters, Looney Tune characters in the West, and the real leaders they, they don't want to have because uh, they don't want people to have any idea of of sovereignty or nationality or identity. So we're all just uh, consumers in the end, and that's what they want, you know. It is a you long know? way. It is a long, long way down, uh, Ian. I was just thinking there momentarily, you know, from De Gaulle to Macron. Uh, not just physically, but what a shrinkage, what a diminution in the, the importance, the significance of a French president does that uh, represent. Even 
compared to Chirac, even compared to Mitterrand. Uh, Macron is such a midget politician, as is Schultz compared to Angela Merkel. I mean, compare Helmut Kohl to, uh, to little soldier Schultz, Angela Merkel to little soldier Schultz. British prime ministers, even Margaret Thatcher to Rishi Sunak, go figure. Jack Kennedy to Joe Biden, seriously? Is that what the Democratic Party has become? Kamala Harris, laughing gas Harris? They're cartoon characters, as you say, Ian. The Western countries are led by a Bob Hawke to little Albanese. Our leaders are cartoon characters. How did that happen? Is it because of our decline or are they the cause of our decline? Can anyone reverse that decline? These are big, big and important questions that occupy my mind often and will continue to be reflected here on the show. Uh, thank you, Ian, in Ontario. I can tell you that the legend that is Norma in Bristol is currently on a deck chair in the Gambia. So I hope it's pain-free, Norma, and the best wishes for your well-deserved holiday. I'm sure go out to you from every single viewer uh, of the mother of all talk shows. Now, President Putin is in Dagestan right now, where he received, frankly, to me, a surprisingly ecstatic welcome. He was there to celebrate the Eid, Eid al-Adha, uh, one of the two festivals in the Muslim world. This one uh, representing a celebration of the ending of human sacrifice, which is why they sacrifice animals on this day of Eid al-Adha. So, my congratulations, Eid Mubarak, to all the faithful Muslims of the world on this, the first day uh, of their festival of Eid al-Adha. Long live the end of human sacrifice, indeed. Which brings me, of course, back to the situation in Ukraine. There's, I think, a deliberately constructed misconception that people like me are happy about suffering and death amongst the Ukrainians just because we believe that the NATO provocation and war against Russia cannot possibly be supported. And I, for one, will never support it. I have never supported any NATO war. And I believe that the last noble use of British and American arms in the world was around about this time in 1944 with the landing on the beaches of Normandy and the fight across France and the sacrifice made by American, Canadian, British and other allied forces in the liberation of uh, France and the 
role played in particular by my own country in 1940 and 1941, following the fall of France, following the surrender in just one single day of governments like the Netherlands that are now transformed into ravenous dogs of war, as long as it's someone else doing the dying in the context of the conflict uh, with Ukraine and Russia. I believe that these were the last shots that we fired that were honorable shots. But that doesn't mean I want to see the suffering in Ukraine continue. I don't. I want this war to stop, preferably by negotiation. But if not by negotiation, then by uh, the events which are already underway. The Ukrainian counter-offensive, first in the spring, then in the summer, has completely failed. And the Ukrainian soldiers, forced into the front lines or not, know it. The focus of the war will increasingly be on the liberation of all of the Donbass east of the river Dnipro and the liberation of the seaboard, principally the great Russian city of Odessa, leaving as a real problem for the NATO countries and the EU countries, another Kosovo in their lap, impossible to finance forever, impossible to defend forever, and an impossible burden as millions of Western Ukrainians fan out across a European Union already struggling to cope with mass influxes of refugees. You have to be careful, you see, what you wish for. You've created a war in Ukraine, but you will end up paying for it in one way or another. You destroyed Libya, and now there's an army of 500,000 men of Africa amassed in Libya, waiting for the opportunity to cross the Mediterranean Sea and enter the countries of Europe unwilling to receive them, who brought about the destruction of Libya in the first place. Be careful what you wish for. Every action brings forth a reaction, and every inglorious blow struck by you will blow back on you one way or another. Some call it karma. Some call it divine justice. But karma or justice, either way, it is surely guaranteed. I've overshot my welcome. Forgive me, dear director and editor, for that. Only remains for me to say I'll be back here, God willing, on Sunday evening at the earlier time of 7 p.m. UK time. And on Sunday, don't forget to check out our German channel, Motes of Deutsch. I promise you, you'll learn German and you'll learn a lot about the politics of the most important European country, Germany. Good night.